Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Nick Orvis and I'm here this week with CJ Linton. Hello. CJ is the GM of our Kids on Bikes campaign, which is airing right now. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about theater, a little bit about tabletop games, and about the game of Kids on Bikes that he's running for us. Thanks for joining us, CJ. Of course, super lovely to be here. To start off, uh, our listeners should know that CJ is a multi-talented, multi-hyphenate artist. He's a writer, a dramaturg, which we are always a huge fan of, and a tabletop game designer whose work includes most recently Tomorrow on Revelation 3 with Dominique Dickey and Those of Us Who Know Better. So CJ, I was wondering, could you talk to us a little bit about how you came to work in both theater and tabletop games? Because that is obviously an overlap that we're all very interested in. Yes, uh, I, I feel like there are so many people who live in both of those worlds. So for both of these things, I actually fell into them a little bit later, um, kind of by accident and then got really into it. Um, I was not a theater kid in high school. Um, I My family went to plays growing up sometimes, but it was something that I started doing when I got to college. Um, there was a theater group at my university who needed a stage manager and I learned what a stage manager was and was like, that is something I could probably do. Um, and then I did um, and I ended up being the they called the role executive producer, which was like a combination managing director, production manager role for that theater group um, for two years. And actually did not get into dramaturgy until towards the very end of college. Um, there was a moment in my life where I was like, I want nothing more than to be an English professor, but the academy is terrible. Um, and then I found <laughs> out you could be an English professor for theater rehearsals. Um, so tried to do that instead, which of course is, as I'm sure you're aware, such an easier industry to be in. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Dra dramaturgy money is, is famously just, easy to get. <laughs> just, yeah. Um, so I, I um, do a little bit of freelancing these days um, and then tabletop games. I think I tried like one session of one D&D campaign when I was younger and then didn't play seriously again until college. Um, my now partner, Liz, invited me to join a D&D campaign and everyone in our group um, sort of got into tabletop games so much that I started a cyberpunk campaign that I ran until I graduated. Um, and then in my first theater apprenticeship out of college, I ran a cyberpunk campaign for those folks. Um, and when the pandemic started, um, I think that was kind of a tabletop renaissance is not the word I'm looking for, but a, a lot of people turned to tabletop games. Um, and I just started digitally running a lot of tabletop games for a lot of people. Um, and there were probably a couple of weeks where I was like running a different game every night for different groups of people. And that was when I really got into jamming. Um, I think it's something that all GMs do where you see your players responding to some parts of a game more than others. And you make those little shifts without consciously thinking about that as modifying a game or as game design. Um, and then the more I was doing that with different systems, that was when I sort of shifted from maybe what you could think of as like 
homebrewing and table rules to to actually designing my own games. I'm really I'm really curious about this as somebody who's interested in game design but not really a game designer and also works in theater. Do you feel like your work in theater and tabletop gaming inform one another in any way or do they feel like separate parts of your your world to you? Oh, I I think there's no way that it can't um cuz it's a a communal story creation experience. Um for not for actual plays but for home games specifically it's like a very tiny communal storytelling experience where your players are like both the audience and the actors. And there are, there are just some things about that that feel very theater to me. Um, and then there are obviously some things that aren't. Um, and then being a, a dramaturg definitely has made me a better GM and a better game designer in terms of asking questions about what the people involved in the in the experience are are looking for Mm, yeah absolutely i feel like that skill of um sussing out sort of what the purpose that the room has come together for is so valuable in in both of those roles and and in some ways under under deployed in both roles i i feel like or certainly in the worlds of tabletop games and theater yeah, I I think in like all of those, like a question I'm always interested in for the people that the experience is centering, whether that's like just the playwright or for like tabletop games, that's everybody in the room. You're coming together and having a communal experience and everyone should be having a good time and be happy with the story you're creating. Like, I think identifying what do we want to be doing here is so useful and so easy to get away from. Do you feel uh, I'm I'm jumping around a little bit, but how how do you think of your role as a dramaturg in the rehearsal hall? Is, yeah. is that what you view as your kind of primary job or your role is to what what you were just describing of seeing what the people at the center of the process want? Um, I think it I think it really depends on the every show I've done dramaturgy for has been so distinct. So like there are some instances where it feels like you do have a really active role in the rehearsal room and you're kind of aiding, you're asking questions in that active way. Um, And I think there are other instances where a lot of the people there have a really good sense of what they want and are like able to create that for themselves and it doesn't really necessitate that level of involvement from the dramaturg. I feel like knowing when when your voice is not needed is also a very important rehearsal hall skill. Sure. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. You you mentioned playwrights earlier. Have you mostly worked in that kind of new play development, like working with writers? Um, um world I of theater? Of, I've kind of done both. I've worked with a couple playwrights on like very early drafts of the thing. And then I've also done dramaturgy for productions where not that there's, I I would say there's always something a dramaturg can add, but like I've done dramaturgy for cabaret and that it like, we're not developing that script. What you're trying to provide to that rehearsal room looks very, very different. So, um, and I, and I enjoy both but just like identifying what is actually the the very different things that you hold, I think 
has been fun for, for all of that. Yeah, we've talked on the podcast before about like tabletop games being like devised theater. And I really do feel like in both art forms, there's such a such an enormous range, you know, everything from like, on the one hand, the very hierarchized, I guess I'll say, for lack of a better word, systems in both tabletop games where you're looking at the like, you know, the kind of traditional dungeon master screen and like one person with all the information or in theater, the sort of regional theater model where there's like the playwright and the director and one or the other or both of them are in charge and everybody else kind of works for them and they work for the theater. And then on the other hand, you know, everything from like lyric games to devised processes um, and collective creation is just really it's such a it's such a huge range. I think it can be ex- challenging in an exciting way to negotiate every time, like what what role am I best serving in this process? And I think there's a lot more freedom in the tabletop games realm, at least in terms of hierarchy, because I know a lot of a lot of people who play D&D who there is that system and that like hierarchy and idea of what it is to be a GM and player that lives in that game text. And then you have people playing games that they consider D&D. Um, and I, I think if someone thinks a game is D&D, it is fair for them to call it that. Um, but that look very different from that yeah. text. So finding ways to like innovate and make, I think, those very stereotypical, like this is what a tabletop game looks like for them. And even just the act of like Wizards of the Coast writes hundreds and hundreds of pages of books about the D&D world. I don't run run or play D&D, so I don't know very much. I couldn't even tell you what any of the continents are. Um, mm-hmm. But there are still people that go and create their whole other worlds to play D&D in. And I think there's something very cool about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's so accessible for anybody to create in a way in a way that theater is actually still relatively accessible for an art form because you just need like people and a place. But, you know, it it can be harder for people to feel like, oh, yeah, I can just go make theater than like I can, you know, play this game with five friends at home is a pretty like easy thing to start to feel like you can get get into. Yeah, there's that que- the the audience question. It's like, is are you cr- fundamentally creating the same thing if it is not on a stage with the idea of an assumed audience, whereas unless you're doing an actual play where you're trying to have an audience of some kind, just a home game doesn't, doesn't have that consideration. Well, speaking of actual plays, you've given me a very good segue. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask, uh, we're, we're recording this, uh, kind of halfway through the, the playing of kids on bikes. Um, so I was curious if you could talk to me a little bit about what you're hoping to do with this game uh what what excites you about this system about these characters uh this town in pennsylvania that you've all collectively come up with uh what what has got your creative juices flowing right now yeah well i i really like kids on bikes as a system but also just the way that the the book is designed i think it's really intuitive and lovely um the fact that, and there are, there are the, um, quick start modules and pre-generated settings at the back. And we opted not to go with those and make our own and 
just the way that the game invites very specifically everybody to contribute pieces of it um, is really exciting. And I, I consider session zero and character creation like you're already playing the game. You're just kind of in in a phase of gameplay setup. Um, like you're you're entering the shared storytelling piece of the game with a shared understanding that you came to together. Um, and that's awesome for the story, but it's also wonderful for the players to get to know each other and feel comfortable and kind of have a sense of what excites each other. So like any system that sets that up um, is very exciting to me. Um, and then like the players are amazing um, and they did a great job making this charming and wacky and extremely specific town. So there are like, I couldn't have asked for better little hooks and things to sort of craft a, an adventure out of. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited, like truly everything about it. I couldn't be happier. Excellent. And, and, Speaking of those hooks, you have done some really incredibly like incredible work on like uh, I, I don't know if fleshing out is exactly the right word, but on like tracking and supporting all of these choices that you and the players made uh, there. There are these amazing pick crews of all of the of like all of the NPCs. And I know just from following you on Twitter that you do some similar stuff uh, in, in your cyberpunk game at home as well. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about why uh, why that level of, of detail and and like organization is important to you? And also just as as a very disorganized person, how, how you <laughs> keep track of everything for these games? Yeah, um, I I will say that I it doesn't feel like that much work to me because most of the stuff that I'm tracking are things that the the players are coming up with. And I'm sometimes I'm writing it like frantically longhand and then typing it up later. But it it feels easy to do because we created it together. Um, and it feels just like having the documentation for things that are that are a shared understanding piece. Um, something that I have a hard time with with crunchier tabletop games is when it's so hard to keep track of all of the information and the things that you sort of need to to know outside of the game to play the game that it begins to impede the gameplay experience. So for for any game I'm running where it's going to be more than than a one shot, I think it's just useful to have all of that compiled for people to reference it's like if you're it's sort of the question of like whenever you're playing a character who doesn't is not exactly you like you don't need to be an expert cryptographer to play an expert cryptographer in a tabletop game so I'm always thinking about for for things on a setting level like if your character grew up in this neighborhood and has the ability to to competently navigate the neighborhood in that way what can I as a GM do to help you do that in a way that is that is fun um, and supports the type of game you want to be doing. And a, a lot of time that's just like having neatly laid out reference documents for people to be like, oh, yeah, I only play this character three hours a week, so I don't necessarily remember the name of every NPC that I've interacted with. But that but that character would. And I like I just use Google Docs. We have for every campaign I've run, there's like a Google Drive folder with all of the little documents and depending on how 
expansive it is um, for the cyberpunk campaign. We have a subfolder within the folder that is just pick of the dozens and dozens of, of NPCs that the players have, have met. Um, so that's a whole level of a thing. But I, I think for most games, like if you, if you just have a, a list of the stuff you mutually decided on, that's great. Yeah. And I, I love the ethos and it feels very dramaturgical to me of like information, transparency and and like uh, accessibility maybe is is the word I'm I'm looking for. I feel like so much of our job as dramaturgs is about making sure people have the information that's not not just useful in a sort of utilitarian way, but actually is generative and like helps helps them create character or live in a character or live in a particular world so that for feels- sure it's it's so grounded in like what what is this thing that i am creating going to do to help you have in in the case of tabletop games like a more fulfilling narrative experience um and then obviously in the rehearsal room it's like you can do infinite research but what of that research is what the playwright is looking for and is going to help them um with whatever they want to be doing with their piece yeah it's not i was just about sorry this is a little bit me reflecting on my own process too as a (laughs) dramaturg but i was going to say it is not always helpful to deliver like all of the information or you know the kind of maximal amount which immediately made me think of the sort of stereotype of the like homebrewing fantasy GM who's like, let's play a game of D&D. Here's my like 500 page treatise on the, you know, the the like Tolkien-esque history of the world that I've created and <laughs> all like all that thing. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to knock that because that is the perfect game for some people and some absolutely. GMs, but I... I'm not that GM. And I, I also try not to make, create like so much information that I can't keep track of it. Um, I'm all for really rich, immersive world building. And I think that's what a lot of players look for, but I don't think that necessarily looks like the GM deciding every detail. Like when, even when you're in a game session and someone's like, let's go to a coffee shop. If the coffee shop doesn't exist yet, I think there's a school of tabletop playing thought that is like the GM needs to come up with that and immediately create that and provide it to the players. And there's another way to play that's like, what do we as the table think the coffee shop is named? And we can we can pause and think about like, why is the character going here? What what do we want to happen in this scene and and have that actually be fun for the game instead of me just scrambling to make up like space lattes (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely um speaking of space uh can you talk to talk to me a little bit about tomorrow on revelation 3 um it is am, am i correct in saying that it is your most recently released game yes it is yeah so people can find it on itch and is there somewhere else that you're selling it? Or is uh, that... It'll be on drive through um, RPG at some point. We haven't gotten okay. around to setting up the, the page yet, but it'll be there at some point. It'll be there soon. Yes. Um, but, but it is a game about surviving capitalism, but in space. So uh, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about your process of working on that um, with, as I said before, Dominique Dickey. 
Um, and also what kind of motivated you to, to create this game? For sure. So it, I actually sort of started off dramaturging this game a little bit before I became, uh, the co-designer and Dom was, they were telling me about this idea they had to create a game about, um, farmers in space who were trying to avoid becoming obsolete because their work was going to become automated. And as I was sort of, we, we have a lot of phone calls where they're like, I have this, they have so many amazing ideas. Um, and I'm very excited to work with them on all of them, but sort of asking like, what excites you about this and why like this specific shape for this project. Um, and what we sort of came to was we didn't want to create a game where it was implied that it would be a bad thing to become obsolete. So for the the narrative to be just like survival and living within the system is certainly a story that people experience every day. But is that is that going to be a fun tabletop game? Um, and so then the question became like, do you want to write this as a short story or is this game going to become something different. Um, and we went with the something different. And that was when we, we sort of reconceptualized it as a bigger system with a whole station and the farming, um, is a big part of, of revelation three, which is the space station it takes place on. Um, but there's a whole kind of rich economic life and very insidious system that the conceit of the game is that the player characters have come together as a group to try to change and, improve that. Um, and then in terms of process, we kind of talked about all of the different ways we could, could do it on like a very high conceptual level down to like, what die do we want to base the the system in, um, until we felt ready to write, um, and then went through a few, a few drafts of that and went from there. It's a really fascinating game. I, I have not quite finished reading the whole, the whole, uh, game manual, but everything I've read so far, I've really loved. I will also say this is this episode is going to come out a little too late, um, but every if you're still feeling spooky when you're listening to this episode, everybody should t also check out CJ's Bring Down the House, which is a game where you play a haunted object who ruins lives, um, <laughs> and I absolutely loved reading that game. Um, the other day and i wish i had somebody to play it with on halloween which is just a few days after we're recording thank you i'm actually running it tomorrow um so i was it that was the first game i designed and there are some things i'm like oh i would do that so differently now the layout is uh sure i don't want to say atrocious but we've learned <laughs> a lot about about layout in the intervening period but it it's thank you I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, of course. I mean, I feel like that's always the, the same thing goes for me for like any any certainly anything I wrote more than a year ago. Sure. <laughs> anytime <laughs> I go back and look at it, I'm like, oh, God, oh, no, really? I'm going to say that. But, you know, we <laughs> we live and we learn. And there's still there's it it's still a really, really like charming, delightful, uh, spooky game. So thank you. <laughs> um. Like I said before, we're we're still kind of in process on kids on bikes, um, but I was curious if there's anything 
so far in the story that whether this is like the mechanics, uh, whether the mechanics have like not quite done what you expected them to do, or if there's anything that specific players or characters have done that has really like surprised slash delighted slash shocked you. (laughs) Um, Just, just like what I, I feel like we, we always, everybody agrees that no, imagined plan survives contact with the players so i'm just curious how that's been manifesting for you in this process um it's it's been really delightful um a few different things have been have surprised me i expected us to be rolling dice more which i never should because i feel like even with games where there are a lot of dice the players aren't always rolling dice a lot um but we there's a lot of really good role play and moments where it feels like a a contested role is not needed um which is always super exciting the transition to the um powered character has been has been really fun and interesting um for for folks who are not familiar with kids on bikes there is a character with supernatural powers who the players and the gm communally control and a lot of the players um, come from D&D backgrounds where that kind of shared NPC or shared setting component or anything like that is not native to the game. Um, so I think I did, we did two episodes where I was playing this character, um, even though everyone had their, their components um, that they were technically controlling before I more formally kind of pushed them to be using that. Um, and so it was really fun to to sort of watch players begin to be more comfortable with saying, actually, I do own this piece of the game that I normally wouldn't have my my hands in. Um, and that can be really fun and exciting. Um, and then also just the last thing is that the, the characters are kids. And we opened on a scene with a um, worker at a silicon chip manufacturing plant. And these kids just absolutely giving him the worst time. Um, and that was so fun to role play. And there's some, there's something so distinct. I've played, I've played and run monster hearts before I've played and run games with teenagers, but just the, the specific portrayals of kids and the way that kind of changed the game. Like it, it truly would be a different game if we were playing with a different age Group. And the players are doing a beautiful job kind of walking that line of like coming of age story. So it it's great. It's been really good. It's it's really been a delight to to listen to. <laughs> and and you're absolutely right. I think I think the story with a different age group would be would feel and be entirely different. Um, so I'm really glad. I'm really glad that we landed on this game. Um because it's it's been really cool to listen to. And just circling back a little, I also wanted to say I again, I've been thinking a lot about transparency recently and uh I don't think that people will have heard this when this interview releases, but I don't think it's a spoiler either. You were talking about the powered character and you did something in the gameplay that I thought was really great, which was when you kind of gave them that transition 
you you kind of told them explicitly, okay, I'm going like I've given you all these the the system for kids on bikes is that with the powered character, the GM kind of hands out individual aspects of the character so that each player controls a couple aspects. And there was a point where you said to them, okay, I'm going to step back from controlling this character now so that you all can can uh, take that over. And I just thought that was such a lovely, um, I think a lot of kind of traditions or like norms in in tabletop GMing and also sometimes in like directing. I also have a background as a director, so that's something I, I think about a lot, have subtle undercurrents of like manipulation to them. So I'm always like a huge, I, I'm always so enthusiastic when I see GMs and directors like communicating clearly and and just, yeah, making those game mechanics explicit in that way. So I thought that was great to see. Thank you. Um, I I think it also just helps people feel empowered to actually use the mechanics if they know mm. why something is, is shifting. Um, I run into that a lot with like world building details too, um, where there are some players who are like, these are my 18 NPCs that are associated with my character and something that would be fun for me would to, would be to watch you play them. And then there are some players who are like, this is my character i don't really care come up with like stuff for me i'm excited to see what you do um and neither neither of those things are the wrong or right way to do it um but just having that explicit conversation with each player about like what what is useful and fun for you i think makes everyone's gameplay experience so much better than were i to just be like i don't know you guys figure it out. I'm doing something different than I was doing 30 minutes ago, but I haven't explained why. So. Yeah. All about communication. We love, we love communication. <laughs> um, great. Well, as, as we wrap up here, CJ, do you have anything, any other projects coming up that our listeners should know about and where can people find you and, and follow your work online? For sure. Or in, in, in meat space as well, if there's somewhere <laughs> they can follow your work in the real world. Um, so my next tabletop project is I am editing and project managing uh, Dominique Dickey's next game, which is called Plant Girl Game. Um, and it is about a witch that grows plant children in her garden. And then those plant children go to middle school. So super excited to get to work on that. Um, and it will be on Kickstarter as part of zine quest early next year. And then I have a couple other written things coming up that I don't think will have been announced by the time this episode drops, but you can follow me on itch and Twitter at near futures and my website, cjlinton.com for any work and project updates and things. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us, CJ. Um, and I'm I'm having a blast listening in as you all play Kids on Bikes. And I hope everybody out there listening is too. You can tune back in to Dungeons & Drama Nerds next week to continue hearing our campaign of Kids on Bikes. Thanks, CJ. Thank you. Dungeons & Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-D. 
Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com. And tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons & Drama Nerds. Dungeons & Drama Nerds.